Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've been to the cinema three times in eight days. Single-handedly holding the industry together there, Mickey. You're welcome, Hollywood. How many films, Mick, in those three attempts? Two films in three watches. I thought it might just be the one, so I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. I, I chucked in a Bond as well as The Many Saints of Newark. Can we talk about this? Everybody saying, including Keir Starmer, because obviously there's nothing else for him to be talking about, <laughs> that the next Bond should be a woman. No, it's bollocks. Just make just more write fucking a roles for character. women. Exactly. Let's have a long-running franchise where there's a woman in the lead role. And not just, as Sarah Dempster said, on Her Majesty's Secret Cervix. <laughs> there is literally nothing female about Bond. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And no, also I'm the development of Bond when it has become a bit more aware of being in the 21st century now is that he has learned to have emotions. He's quite cuddly in this Bond. You know, he, he talks about his feelings and stuff. And it's like, that's a better development than just shoehorning a woman into the role. The name's McGee. Tits McGee. My name's not Tits McGee, it's <laughs> Hannah Dunleavy, and I've cleaned my carpets this weekend because I know how to enjoy myself. You absolute glamorous bastard. How did you do it? With a vac. A vac? It's nice. Did you hire it? Is no, it yours? Do you own it? I dusted it off. God, so you had to clean the vax before you could clean the house. Oh, vaxes are <laughs> repulsive as well, because you know all that stuff you get in a hover? Yeah. yeah it's basically just hair, right? It's exactly yeah. the same as that. But wet. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just repulsive. But it also soaks your carpet for like two days. I think I've got trench foot now. <laughs> <laughs> you can mention that in What Did You Make Me Watch? Because obviously okay. it's equivalent for... You, it's basically, you're a war hero, Hannah. Me My, and Joe Toy, basically the same person. Exactly yeah. that. My mum used to vax the pond when I was little. She'd empty all the, the water and the fish out and put them somewhere else. And then she'd, she'd vax the pond to make it cleaner. I'm pretty sure that's not how the professionals do it. I think you've told me that before, and, and it I've got, no I still sense. don't know. <laughs> I still don't know how to process it. I've got three stories, Jen, and I'm on a podcast, so you're just gonna have to get used to it. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and I love that we've both gone there, Hannah, with our wild and interesting life facts. I've been teaching myself a new knitting stitch. Wow, so, uh, you two yeah. need to slow down. <laughs> I know. So it's the linen stitch. Thanks for asking. I, I don't know what that means. I know knit one, Neither and do pearl I. one. That's yeah. a stocking stitch i don't know i don't know it's just it's your standard isn't it it's your your knit one per one classic this is quite complicated so my progress has been slow what's the results i mean i could show you um it doesn't work know. brilliantly for a podcast but let's no, try this but i could i could show you and then you could tell the listener what you uh what you think about jen it. is holding it's up some wool of, uh, I couldn't tell the difference between that and, and knitting. It's got little holes well, it is in knitting, it. Yeah, no, but I mean other just... forms of knitting. I would say it looks a bit more like crochet. Yes, right. it's kind of got a hint of lace. It, thanks, Mick. That's exactly what I'm going for. A sort of, <laughs> a sort of weave rather than an, a traditional knit. Later on, I chat with Zelda Perkins and Julie McFarlane about non-disclosure agreements, how they're misused, and what their excellent campaign, Can't Buy My Silence, is doing to change that. Oh, and in case you're wondering what their credentials for talking about NDAs are, Zelda used to work for Harvey Weinstein, and Julie's a law professor who took on the Anglican Church. Yikes. Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. Literally. (laughs) 
I chat to actor and playwright Merlin Tong about her adaptation of Antigone. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be asking, can women have it all? I don't want it all. No, me neither. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. It's, yeah, tiring. I mean, when would Hannah get her carpets cleaned? Exactly. <laughs> can I just say, you don't know what I've been doing to make my carpets dirty. Was it a hot chocolate-based orgy? I mean, it could have been. Okay. It wasn't. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to undermine the absolutely <laughs> louche lifestyle that we all know you lead. <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, we are so hot right now as we watch Ben Stiller's 2001 cameo-tastic male model comedy, Zoolander. Can I just say, you don't know what I'm knitting. It's a scarf. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, listener, they're both very exciting people now. Move on. <laughs> it's a scarf. I can only knit in straight lines. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but first, dick, dicks and dodgy advice. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. All sexism of the week, all the time. By now, you will no doubt have heard the news that Wayne Cousins, the former Metropolitan Police officer who admitted to the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard in March this year, was handed a whole life order when sentenced at the Old Bailey last week. In the hearing, which lasted two days, the court learned about the final hours of the 33-year-old marketing executive who was abducted on a walk home from her friend's house in Clapham, south-west London. The court was told that Cousins had driven around London for several hours in a hired car looking for a lone woman before stopping Everard. He lied to her about her having broken COVID restrictions, using knowledge on COVID patrols gained as part of his job for the Met. He showed her his warrant card and used his police handcuffs to falsely arrest and detain her before driving 80 miles to rape and murder her and then set fire to her body in a bid to conceal his crime. Lord Justice Fulford handed down the sentence reserved for the most heinous of crimes, a whole life order sentence, which means cousins will die in prison. In his sentencing remarks, Lord Justice Fulford said the strong evidence against cousins likely influenced his decision to plead guilty rather than any genuine sense of remorse. He highlighted the fear cousins had instilled in women as a result of his crime, as well as the gross abuse of his powers as a serving police officer and the inevitable erosion of trust between the public and the police. Over to the Metropolitan Police's PR department. Oh, fucking hell. I know. You may remember that back in June, head of the Met, Cressida Dick, cited the occasional badden, that's a direct quote, in the force. Mm. Now, let's not get distracted by the use of badden in this context to describe a man who, by his own admission, kidnapped, raped and murdered a woman. Let's not get distracted by stop and search statistics, which, as many a young black man in London will tell you, are evidence of any number of baddens abusing the powers gifted to them by their warrant cards, although these are both relevant points. I'll try also not to be distracted by the interview with a former senior detective doing the rounds last week, in which he reassuringly asserts that other members of the Met do not view Wayne Cousins as a police officer. That's another direct quote. Fuck's sake. Which is too bad, really, because he very much was a police officer. As were the at least 15 serving or former police officers to have killed women in the UK since 2009, according to data from the Femicide Census, also revealed last week. 
As a growing number of voices, including Harriet Harman, called for Dick to stand down from her post, she very much stood firm, apologising outside the court for the shame Cousins had brought to the police. What about that mislink between Cousins and an allegation of indecent exposure before he even joined the Met, though? Well, that's a live criminal inquiry you will be relieved to hear. But why would we talk about the police vetting process when we could talk about what women could do? Indeed. Let's talk about it, shall we? So there were some actual suggestions. Some real, genuine suggestions. These, this is what they actually think we could or should do. Made by the Metropolitan Police, what we could do as women if approached by a lone police officer who makes us feel uncomfortable. Were you ready for this? I am. Like, for example, shout to a passerby or run into a house. <laughs> There's so much about running into a house that is wrong here. Like, I'd run into a, a, a stranger's house? Yeah, and you will get to this with the bus suggestion which is coming but the idea that there's that almost any stranger would be less danger to you than a policeman it's truly truly troubling it's pretty bad isn't it and but also because running away from police officers has historically ended really well for people hasn't it yeah and i say that as a white person who would in no way feel empowered enough to run away from someone who presented as a police officer exactly that imagine how other demographics of people must yeah. feel about that suggestion like it's mm. genuinely insulting yeah but my favorite suggestion as you alluded to before hannah however was to wave down a bus <laughs> <laughs> have you ever used the public transport system in london because a decent proportion of bus drivers don't even stop at bus stops on their routes this uh, this suggestion is so bullshit because somewhere it suggests that a bus driver and i'm absolutely not saying anything bad about bus drivers that a bus driver would be more thoroughly vetted than a policeman that like you say buses do not stop for you if you try and wave them down and none of these people have obviously tried to run for a bus partly because a lot of them are told if they do stop they will lose their job because you know health and safety and all of that stuff if you get off a bus not at a stop and you get hit by a cyclist coming up the side or something you might sue them. So now are we saying, I mean, I get it that Cresta Dick works for the Met, so she is only really talking about London here. But are we saying that women should only walk along bus routes just in case this happens mm. in the hope that a bus will come and save you? And are we saying that a bus driver has to make a decision, right? And a bus driver who in central London actually has a relatively high percentage of being a man that is not white, mm. right, is to put his life and work and all of that in danger by potentially helping someone abscond that, from the I mean, place. that's the thing, isn't it? Is that the thing that is so... I mean, there's so much that's so maddening about it, but, like, the, the PR here is appallingly bad. I, I said before it's insulting. It is insulting how little they've bothered to try and spin this. Like, it's hard they've to spin. They've had six months! Exactly, exactly. And this is the best you could do. They knew it was coming... They obviously knew the evidence they had collected against him. They had six months to prepare for what was going to be a fucking PR shit show, as well as, and let's, let's not forget, of course, that it's not just a PR shit show, a woman has lost her life. Her family are without her, and, and her mother's impact statement, I don't know if you read it, but it's singularly the most devastating thing I've ever read. It, you know, yeah. But, like, they've not even bothered to try and 
So if you're not going to bother, why don't you just put your fucking hands up and say, we've really fucked this up and this is how we're going to make it better? Well, exactly that. What they need to say is this is how we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again, not this is how you should prepare for if it does happen again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's like it's deflecting all of it on, oh, it's your problem now, it's the bus driver's problem now. It's, it's not like, fuck, how are we going to stop baddens? from being given positions of power that they can abuse. What are we going to do about this institutionalised fucking problem that we have? Yeah. Well, it's not just Cressida Dick who just doesn't seem to get it. North Yorkshire Police Fire and Crime Commissioner Philip Allett apologised after his comments on the case were judged to be a load of old victim blaming sexist bollocks. That's my words, but I'm confident you'll find plenty of other people who've used that exact expression. The Conservative told his local radio station, quote, So, women, first of all, need to be streetwise about when they can be arrested and when they can't be arrested. She should never have been arrested and submitted to that. Perhaps women need to consider in terms of the legal process to just learn a bit about that legal process. <gasps> yes, you heard him. He said Sarah Everard should never have got in the car with cousins. We also got a horrifying insider view of the culture of the Met from an interview with ex-Met Chief Superintendent Palm Sandu on Radio 4's The World at One. Sandu, who worked at the Met for 30 years, called the police service very sexist and misogynistic. She added, quote, A lot of women will not report their colleagues. What happens is that male police officers will then close ranks and the fear that most women police officers have got is that when you're calling for help... You press that emergency button or your radio, they are not going to turn up and you're going to get your head kicked in in the street. She also said that women officers who are married to male police officers, quote, won't report domestic violence because of the same sort of issues. (sighs) Meanwhile, in Parliament, the news that Cousins had on five occasions been on armed protection duties at Parliament between February and July 2020 caused what I can only describe as a sideshow. Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has called for an urgent meeting with the Met Police about police vetting, calling Cousins' placement at the House extremely concerning. I mean, I can save Hoyle the time and say MPs should just flag down a cleaner if they have any concerns and just learn a bit about defending themselves against a sadist with a gun. And while the Met and the wider police service have seemingly so far failed to grasp this as the moment to tackle institutionalised sexism in the service, the media continues to play its own role in normalising Cousins' behaviour. Exhibit 1, this now-changed Sun headline. Wayne Cousins had a 14-year-old girlfriend when he was 23, former pal reveals. Spoiler alert, that's not a girlfriend, it's a grooming victim. (sighs) And while we're on the media, let me stop to say a special Ah, go fuck yourself to the Daily Beast, which tweeted the following on the story of a young woman presumed murdered by a man who wouldn't take no for an answer. Here's that tweet. The body of Mia Marcona, a Florida college student who vanished after repeatedly rejecting romantic overtures from a maintenance worker in her apartment complex, has been found. Romantic overtures rejected. Well, okay then, what's a guy to do? Oh, God. And it's worth saying that the police are absolutely confident that said maintenance worker did kill her and he has subsequently taken his own life so no answers for her family at all about what happened to her worth mentioning also since we're here 
as it has been a bit overshadowed this week and because the laws about contempt of court mean there's not a lot that can be said, but Albanian garage worker Kosi Selamaj, age 36, has been charged with the murder of Sabina Nessa in south-east London on Friday, September the 17th. More news on that as it happens. One more thing I wanted to say here is that, yes, this does all seem terrifying, but in truth, most women are killed by somebody they know, their partner or an ex-partner. And I'm all for shouting from the rooftops about violence against women. But if you'd like to do something a bit more practical, there are several charities tackling violence against women that are always looking for donations. Women's Aid and NIA, that's N-I-A, are good examples. And I'd also like to mention White Ribbon UK, which works with men and boys to try to end violence against women. More news next time. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Zelda Perkins and Professor Julie McFarlane, founders of Can't Buy My Silence, a brand new, and I've got to say, vital campaign to stop the expanding and misuse of non-disclosure agreements, or as they are popularly known, NDAs. And boy, have they become popular, but we will get to that. Zelda, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. Julie, hello. Hello, great to be here. Oh, I'm so, so chuffed to have you both. I guess it would be helpful for listeners to hear what an NDA actually is and how they've been misused. So, Julie, you're the professor. Would you mind doing the honours? Oh, I always get all the nice jobs, you know. So a non-disclosure agreement is actually just what it sounds like. It is an agreement that you will not disclose something. And the way these began was back in the 1980s with the tech bubble and everybody was doing all this exciting new work with software and new platforms and they wanted to stop people taking you know new innovations to other companies if they got headhunted so that's how they started trade secrets but non-disclosure agreements are now used we think in around 95 percent of all the cases that settle and all the complaints that settle and what they do is gag people from saying anything at all to usually their family, friends, even a therapist, anybody at all about their experience. And they are told wrongly that they have to agree to this to protect their own privacy. But that's not right because you don't have to protect the other side, which is what the NDA does. It Mm -hmm. means that you have to keep silent about what happened to you and what the other person did as a victim. That's not necessary. We could just protect victims' privacy without at the same time letting these perpetrators go ahead unacknowledged to often do the same thing again. As I said, Can't Buy My Silence is a new campaign, but you have both been campaigning around NDAs for years. And I think your personal experiences with them are very telling about how NDAs are being egregiously misused. So Zelda, I'm going to start with you. And to be honest... I was half tempted to start this interview with just three minutes of me clapping, but I mean, we will, we we need you to start talking, but please could you tell us your personal experience with NDAs and how you were integral in bringing down convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein? Sure. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad there's no clapping. I worked at, at Miramax and for Harvey personally for about five years. When I started working there, I was never made to sign anything. I didn't. I, I didn't think I even had a proper employment agreement. I think I just got a like a letter of engagement. After working for him for about four years um, and having suffered what we now all have vocabulary for, which is extreme sexual harassment, yeah. but I didn't know the term sexual harassment. I just kind of it was normalised. And to be fair, 
as a woman, and this is still the case, I would say 99.9% of us have received, you know, some form of sexual harassment in the workplace from a male colleague or yeah. boss or on the street from a builder or whatever you want to call it. It's just part yeah. of, of the female experience. So it wasn't something that I had really taken on board in terms of I was being abused. However, once I got my own assistant at Miramax and she first came and met Harvey and was alone with Harvey, he assaulted her and he actually physically assaulted her and I had always um, managed to dodge that bullet I think probably because I'm quite verbally punchy Um, and when she told me what happened I immediately confronted Harvey and ended up we were in we were in the Venice Film Festival because everyone doesn't really understand why we didn't immediately go to the police but we weren't we were very isolated we were on an island in Venice we didn't actually have access to police I also have to say my colleague was young and very traumatised and wasn't at that moment prepared to go to the police, even if it had been an an easy option. We didn't have an HR department in the UK. I didn't know what HR stood for anyway. And when we returned to the UK, I reported what had happened to my senior, my only senior at work, who was a female producer. Her first response, which was horrifying, was she wasn't shocked. And that was very informative oh, to me. So that gave me a really big fright because I, I was obviously very shocked when my assistant came to me and I was like, right, that's it. We're, we're not going back in a room with him. This is done. He's left us no choice. We're going. But when I told my senior producer, she was like, mm, OK, yeah, well, you need to get yourself a good lawyer. OK. And I was like, oh, OK. I mean, it kind of sounds pathetic now, but 1998 was a long time ago. You know, the internet was still quite young. You know, mobile phones were the size of a brick. Sorry to interrupt you, but it doesn't sound pathetic. It doesn't. And it makes me really sad that you still have to disclaim stuff because of what yeah. happened to you and yeah. to your assistant. You did nothing wrong. I think it's it's difficult. In, you know, things have changed so much and people's automatic response is, oh, why didn't you just text for help or because we actually yeah. we kind of didn't have those we, we didn't have that at our fingertips and because because I called the citizens advice bureau <laughs> that is old school <laughs> like what do I do when somebody gets assaulted my boss comes to work naked yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do I do about that <laughs> um and I ended up crossing the street and going to a solicitor's firm that was literally over the street. And actually, to be honest, this was the beginning of, for me, the real the real shock and horror of the whole situation. Because when I told the solicitors what had happened, first of all, they gave me some information that I didn't know, that I, what had happened to me also was basically illegal you know the my working environment was criminal and that was shocking to me because I didn't realize that and it kind of immediately changed the ground for me I presumed that at this point we would be going into a criminal proceedings and justice would be served and it was going to be really messy and it was going to be in the daily mail and there was going to be a horrible courtroom drama but I was immediately disavowed of this by the lawyers because they were like, no, no, you know, you didn't go to the police. You've got no physical proof. You're 24. Your colleague's 23. It's he said, she said. You think anyone's going to believe you over Harvey Weinstein? And I was like, but I've just told you the guy tried to rape her. And they were like, yeah, and how are you going to prove that? 
And I'm like, well, we'll go to court. And they're like, okay, so you're going to go to court against Harvey Weinstein. And he is going to pull every skeleton out of every friend, family, associate that you've ever had. He'll find out every, you know, perverted, drunken night, whatever that you've been up to. He will sue you, your family, any, you know, anybody who's associated with you for every penny they've got. Is that what you want to do? My gut reaction, and if it had been me, I'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go to battle. But it wasn't me. It was somebody else, and it was somebody else who'd, who, you know, who'd been assaulted. And also, once they kind of alerted me to the fact that it wouldn't just be me that would be destroyed, it would be my family and friends and yeah. all of this. And I'm not saying that the solicitors were the baddies here. They were giving me correct advice. Yeah. But it was much more shocking to me what they told me and then the process that we were taken through than anything that Harvey had done. I was very aware that people are unreliable and weak. But in my mind, in my small world, at that, you know, grand old age of 25, I thought everyone was equal in the eyes of the law and I thought justice was accessible. And I thought that if you told somebody something criminal had happened, I thought it was binary, I thought it was black and white. Yep. Again, we weren't then asked to enter into an NDA. We were told that the only way forward was to have a damages agreement for the damage that had been caused and you know that would mean that we were um you know we could have some money so that we could have a but you know a bit of time and a bit of a good reference and we could get on with our lives so that's how it was dressed up to us initially you know the process of, of that happening was even more horrific actually than what both my colleague and I went through with Harvey 22 years is a long time to have that on your shoulders how did you feel in February 2020 when he got sent to jail? <laughs> well, it was funny because, funnily enough, I did get asked that quite a lot. And when he was convicted, I didn't feel anything because there wasn't actually one part of me that believed that he would be sentenced and that he would go to jail. Harvey always wins. Harvey never gets no. And you saw the way he fought and how many lawyers he went through. And yes. you saw what happened to those women on the stand. And there was just no, there wasn't any part of me that believed that he'd really, I thought he'll go to prison for like a year. Mm-hmm. He'll get his way out. Everything that I had learnt from 1998 to 2020 confirmed to me that he was a, a white man in power and there was no way that he that justice would be served. So when he was actually sentenced to uh, I think it was 27 years or which at that point was exactly how long it had been that I had been under that agreement right I think it was the first emotion that I felt throughout the entire the entire process of coming forward and fighting and whatever Um, and it was a sort of it was a very mixed feeling it was a feeling of unbelievable euphoria that justice had been served because I had lost all faith in the legal system particularly through the experience I had when I broke my NDA and in those ensuing years because the legal business treated me so unbelievably poorly but it was also a very difficult thing to hear Mm -hmm. and a very difficult thing to have lots of people clapping me on the back and saying how amazing you know you've sent him down you've been part of that because there is no part of me as a human being that can take joy from being part of someone else's death sentence and no matter how bad and awful and evil Harvey was and how many lives he destroyed, I'm not Harvey. It is not an easy thing either to be part of, of somebody's 
sentenced to death, which it is, because Harvey's not going to come out of prison. You know, he's going to die in the next four or five years. Zelda, you are a much better person than me. Uh, <laughs> and all power to you. So, Julie, I mean, blimey, what a story to follow. But your story is huge mm. as well. You took on the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about your experience with NDAs, please? So, I mean, this is what's really brought Zelda and I together because we've both personally experienced just how appalling these non-disclosure agreements are. As Zelda's told you, she was silenced for 27 years about what, what Harvey Weinstein had done. Um, I brought a case against the Anglican Church in um, 2014 for um, my sexual abuse by church minister when I was a teenager. So it was 40 years earlier. And as part of my settlement with the Anglican Church, what I negotiated was a new claims policy that would be used in future. And it's it's all up there on their insurer's website now for people coming forward with claims. And one of the things that it included was that they would not ask people to sign NDAs because I was clear at the very beginning. I mean, I'm a law professor. I knew about NDAs. And I said at the very beginning of my process of negotiation with the Anglican Church, don't even bother asking me because I am not fucking signing one. Like, (laughs) forget it. Let's not waste our time here. Let's get that on a T-shirt. I think that's the merch. Yeah. (laughs) So... So they, you know, this all went into this policy. But I mean, a policy is a policy. And, you know, as Zelda and I know well through years of working on this issue, it's great when a company adopts a policy saying they won't use NDAs. And it's great when the Solicitors Regulation Authority encourage lawyers to be careful about using them. But none of this is actually getting monitored. And what we absolutely know for a fact is that NDAs are still being used constantly and all the time. So the next thing that happened to me was that I was involved at my university as a professor with a case involving a colleague, a tenured professor, who was a serial harasser of students. This had been going on for years and years. We brought forward some faculty members and myself to the university administration, to the president, that you know he needed to get suspended, investigated, etc. Um, and that did happen. He was suspended, he was investigated, and he was terminated for um it makes it sound harassment. like you killed him <laughs> it does make you sound well like... i love it every time julie says that i just have a vision of him kind of pinned to a wall <laughs> well, if only oh, Schwarzenegger because... coming out of some molten yeah. metal and sorting him out well it did take 15 months of you know undile as, as anyone who's done this and there are lots of other people out there who've done this kind of work it takes a lot of a lot of fight but we were we were jubilant we were you know ecstatic when the university decided to terminate him but what we didn't realize and i didn't realize until about six months later when i started to get phone calls from people at other law schools asking me about him because he'd applied to them for a job was that they gave him an nda none of his victims were part of this nda this was an nda between him and the university that they would affect i mean what i now have all these documents that they would destroy all the personnel records with all the complaints against him and they would give him a letter of recommendation, which I also have. So oh. he was able to go to other law schools. I mean, I know it's completely wrong. see my face, but it's fucking horrified. It's disgusting. And I mean, this was the kind of thing that, you know, when this was going on, I was thinking, this is so outrageous. It's such a no brainer. Why aren't all my colleagues and everybody else standing up and shouting about this? But there was a deafening silence. 
And I quickly found out why there was a deafening silence. And I was the only person going public and saying, this is outrageous. We can't be doing this. I told all these schools that had called me, don't employ him. This is why he left here. He then served me with a defamation suit um, in Trinidad, which meant, of course, that I couldn't call any witnesses to tell the truth. And to cut a very long story short, the university hid behind the NDA threw me after 25 years of working for them, and I was at the highest rank of the university, member of the Order of Canada, threw me under the bus, and I now have, I am now the proud owner of a defamation order because none of the evidence showing the reasons for his termination was ever given to the court in Trinidad. So my story is a very different story from Zelda's, but it shows the ways in which NDAs can be used to shut up, not just the people who signed them, because I never signed the NDA. I would never have signed this NDA. But because the university held all the information and they were hiding it because of the NDA, I ended up getting subject to a defamation order. And the last the last I heard from him, he was uh, he'd gone to court in Trinidad because, of course, I'm still talking about it to try to get me imprisoned for contempt. So if there's a knock at the door sometime during this <laughs> podcast, I might get dragged off in chains. But, you know, that would make a kind of pretty spectacular. Part yeah, but you know podcast. what? If you're going to go to prison, Trinidad must be like quite a nice place to be. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the downside <laughs> of all of this is I've got a lot of Trini friends, you know, a lot of Trini friends. And I'd love to go to Trinidad, but I don't think it's going to be on my vacation wish list, really. So. Oh, well, yeah. well, now I'm wishing I'd pressed hit on video because, like, obviously, if that happens, I don't want to miss it. But I've got to say, I think, I think NDAs are massively misunderstood. There's a, quite often an attitude of, well, they took the cash and ran, which in the majority of cases is just plain inaccurate to the point of offensive. And also, I think they're seen as an American issue, which is not the case at all. So the BBC found that British University had spent more than a million pounds on NDAs between 2016 and 2020, included in cases of sexual assault. The House of Commons has used NDAs in recent years. They're also widely used to silence women claiming pregnancy-related discrimination at work. And legislation to announce a restriction of NDAs, which I know you've both worked on, in the UK was announced in 2019, but nothing happened. It is back on the table now, though, isn't it? That's right. Well, yes, it is. I mean, the government spent a lot of money investigating this. Theresa May's, May's government, with a, you know, two select committee inquiries, a, a public inquiry. Oh, my cat's come to join in. I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, a public consultation and recommendations were made. Not strong enough recommendations, but better than where we currently stand. But then, dear Mr. Johnson got in, and all of that has fallen to the bottom of the pile. And understandably so because the vested interests are not there for for ndas we have several members of the cabinet who are never allowed to name even though it's in the public domain who hold ndas for bullying for harassment um hang on let me just do my surprise oh no it's fine no surprise (laughs) (laughs) what and and the problem is is actually the british press all believe that the law has changed the law has not changed. Nothing has changed since 1998. The only difference between what happened to me in 98 and now, legally, is there are whistleblowing laws. But there is, there is no difference in legislation, and there is also no difference in the regulation you know, by the solicitor's regulatory authority. They have put out several very strong warning notices since I broke the NDA and alerted all the naughty lawyers that they were skating a bit close to the line. 
But my fear with that, as I keep saying to the SRAs, is actually all that does is make this, the, the bad Apple solicitors deepen the devious way that they hide their NDA, make sure that their language is even more careful, are even more threatening to the victim so mm-hmm. that they don't discuss it. So it's actually pushing it further underground. Yeah. And as Julie was saying, it's now so ubiquitous and it's not just in employment. You know, it's if you have a faulty breast implant, if you have a gambling addiction, you know, if you're living in a building with flammable cladding and you want the government grant, oh, guess what? There's an NDA in that agreement. I mean, it has become this filthy habit. And I'm not going after any individual solicitor. For me, it's about changing it at the root, not the branch. Harvey's a branch. The lawyers are branches. You can chop them off, but they're just going to grow back. Unless you get it black and white in legislation, and black and white in regulation so that the solicitors have absolutely clearly that they cannot use these in the in any way other than to protect trade secrets and ip then the problem is going to continue we're exactly on the same page about okay, that i don't that. believe that we that we can reform the solicitors i mean you know what i would like to add to that is there is a deep culture now in the legal profession that does this unquestioningly. I mean, we're not here to make particular examples of particular people, but we're here to call out a culture of practice in which everybody believes that this is what you should be doing and they're not questioning it. And of all of the people, the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that Zelda and I talked to who signed NDAs, not a single one of them understands it properly. Not a single one of them didn't feel pressured into signing it because they thought this would finally mean that whatever had happened to them was going to be over. But of course, that's not really what happens because people then live in fear of breaking the NDA. So in order to get rid of that culture, it's simply, you know, we've got to take the toys away. We've got to say to lawyers, you can't do this any longer. How do we take their toys away? How do we change this? What What is Comp by My Silence doing and how can we help? Sorry, that's 12 questions, but please answer all of them. Oh, no, I can answer it in, in, in one fell swoop, which is legislation. This is why we don't feel like going to companies and asking them to sign up and promise not to do it, asking lawyers to promise not to do it. This isn't going to work. We need legislation that will make NDAs unenforceable, which is just a legal term for they won't have any validity. They won't exist. They can't be enforced against people. So we need this to happen from the top down. And then there's no option. Solicitors can't do them. They're unenforceable. Companies can't give them. They're unenforceable. And for that, we've gone to Maria Miller MP, who is tabling her own private members bill in England and Wales. There is a bill going through the Irish Parliament that we've been working on with Senator Senator Lynn Rowan. And there are two legislatures in Canada, one federal, one provincial, who are about to introduce the very same legislation. Whoop, whoop. Yes. How do we, Joan Public, get behind this? Write to your MP because that really is powerful, you know, and this is another kind of call to arms for women about everything. You know, you have to engage with our politicians if you want stuff to happen. It is worth it. So we need people to sign our petition. We'd love some pennies in the bank because we're doing this for free and we need to, you know, keep putting stuff out on social media. We need to lobby the government. You know, we have a lot of stuff that we're trying to do. And a lot of great people working for free for us. Yeah. (laughs) But also anybody who has signed an NDA or anybody who knows anybody who's signed an NDA, please give us your testimony. We will anonymize it. We are very thankful to everyone's invited for that, you know, because they've really shown how effective that is in Mm -hmm. 
getting the knowledge out there. Because as you say, people don't really understand the catastrophic ripple effect that signing one of these agreements have. And people don't understand in that moment of signing. They might not understand two or three months later, but I can tell you six months later, a year later, two years later, both Julie and I, and you know, and this is, I think, one of the reasons we're both so passionate about this is, you know, we're approached every day by people whose lives are ruined and are still being ruined by the unseen, you know, this is a silent, a silent abuse because the abuse is continual every single day. You can't talk to your friends or family. You can't explain what's going on. You can't deal with the PTSD. You can't get your job, your next job because you can't explain why you left your old job. It's a really divisive and dirty deal to make, although it's presented to you as a panacea. And it's behind closed doors. So we're shining a light. We're trying to get those doors open and shine the light in there. Where can people find out more, please? Go to our website, which is can'tbuymysilence.com. You'll see how you can sign a petition, uh, make a donation if you're able to do so. And also importantly, as Zelda said, we need people's stories. We will protect people by removing any identifying details. They will be anonymized stories, but these stories, and we already have a bunch of them up on the website. These are stories that are so horrifyingly consistent, how people were persuaded to do this, then they regret it, they're living with the trauma and the ongoing consequences. And also, just to remind ourselves, the person who did whatever happened to them is also being able to continue to do it because their identity is also hidden. So we need your testimonies, people. This is the kind of thing that is really driving, I think, the public awareness and the growing public awareness of this. And that would be a fantastic start. Go to the website, can'tbuymysilence.com. It's a really good looking website and very intuitive and it's packed with information. And obviously I'd done a, a lot of research, but there was still stuff on there that made me go, seriously, what the fuck? Thank you for all of your campaigning, all of your hard work, and thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. I'm joined by actor and playwright Merlin Tong, who is here today to talk to me about her adaptation of the play Antigone, which is showing at the Mercury Theatre in Colchester between October the 1st and October the 16th. Hello, Merlin. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thanks, Jen. How are you going? Not too bad. Not too bad. As as discussed, got a bit of a, a, bit of a wine cold this morning, but um, yeah. I'm going to struggle through nonetheless. First of all, I wondered if you could tell me... Now, I studied Antigone for Drama A-Level many, many years ago, but uh, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit, for listeners who maybe are less familiar with it, a little bit about the story of Antigone. Absolutely. So, um, basically, Antigone's brother dies, and he's denied any kind of burial by... The reigning used to be king, but now for us, queen. Yeah. And this queen is actually her auntie as well. So complications come. She needs to do this burial, but the queen is not allowing that. So that actually takes us through the course of the play and to a, I'm sure this is not a spoiler, but I think tragic it, ending. It's been around for a while. So if it's a it's spoiler, a then <laughs> sorry, yeah. guys. But, you know, it's, you know. <laughs> so as you sort of said there, 
you have written for for the purposes of your adaptation you have written creon as a woman which is interesting because creon is basically creon's a prick isn't he like he is very <laughs> proud he's very ego driven he is you know they're not necessarily traits that we associate with mm. women so i wondered why you had chosen to write it this way yeah so i actually found it fascinating to when i was reflecting on the patriarchy right and what that means and all that and through creon i was exploring when the female form actually takes on the patriarchy and that that really doesn't solve anything you know and actually it can get even more uh complicated and uh horrible and also i was very drawn to that image again no spoilers because you know this place two thousand years old but creon holds his son at the end and i was really struck by that image of a woman holding her son and and crying out for her babies like that image went oh that's exciting and the company too it was a collaborative thing of oh what if um um, Creon was a woman and the more I started to think about it and I, I thought about politicians too you know and how sometimes women get into power by taking on that masculine traits yeah. and becoming a part of the patriarchy and then seeing that form fight against a younger woman that was just exciting to me and feels like a new angle to explore did you have any uh, just interested because there is a, a very famous English example that I would uh, that that came to me as I was thinking about this interview for exactly the reasons that that you mentioned. Did you have any particular politicians in mind? I have Australian ones, but I feel like they they exist absolutely everywhere in the world, isn't it? A woman yeah. who cast aside feminism or any of that kind of talk. And uh, we have one pretty extreme one here in town, anti-Asian particularly, and then anti-Muslim and then anti-any kind of immigration. And she just did this speech um, praising men, like literally the whole speech was just about our brave Australian men. I'm like, oh, that's gold. That's, that's wow. You, you, yeah, it feels like fiction. So yeah, that figure, but then there's, there's so many around the world and it's interesting the the person that sprung to my yes. mind yes. is margaret thatcher i don't know if you know much yeah. about margaret yeah. thatcher but yeah she was a bit yeah. of a one for, for that yeah. kind of thing it's weird isn't it because i think it is still very shocking to people mm. when women are assholes for one of a better word i think it's still mm. shocking to people and we were actually talking on the podcast a couple of weeks ago now about mm. um the film citizen kane and the central character citizen kane being you know just a really unpleasant man but how that film is still so lauded and so celebrated for you know for completely fair reasons but but mm. just like you don't really get things where women play yeah. unpleasant characters that then go on to be like really celebrated revered yes yes and in fact even as an actor sometimes i find myself fighting for the unpleasantness in my characters and and particularly you know i'm an asian woman so people get worried about representation or oh, we can't do this yeah it, it's a it's a complex problem isn't it because i too want to play the meaty exciting roles and yeah because they're more i guess they're more interesting to play right yeah and as long as, and I don't, often I don't advocate for a single person of colour on stage, and that, because that's so much responsibility and weight. And in that show I'm thinking about, there were four of us that were all Asian. So I thought, make one of us interesting and nasty, and, it, you know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. What I can do best is um, to make my characters, all characters I write or perform, a, a whole human being 
rather than the one thing because it's just a disservice to anyone to just be the one trait like for example in our creon they really like wanting to be a good mom too and but also wanting this power and it, it's a complex thing you know you know, I, I personally believe people are not, you know, good or bad. People are people. They're multifaceted. There are different aspects to them. So I was going to ask you, can you tell us a little bit more about your Creon? Yeah, for sure. So I had so much fun writing Creon because when I read it, some of the things in the original, it, it's just quite, like you say, quite assholey, isn't it? It's a bit, especially when he talks about women, it's very like, whoa, okay, that's not interesting. But put it in the lips of a woman, it sort of shifts that um, the perspective a bit. So I see Creon as really trying to first be a good custodian to uh, Antigone because she's taken Antigone in after her parents have passed away. So she really is trying to be a good aunt, a good guardian. And also she is also trying to be a good mother to Haman. But ultimately, power is so seductive and being power hungry and we envision in the original production also that it's the first woman to rule. So there's a lot on her shoulders, you know, she feels like exactly what we just talked about earlier. She's representing. So she wants to do her best. So it's a complex and flawed human being and she gets punished for it. Because you're right, it's, I think with women and I know non-white people, the feeling is always like, oh, you're the first so if you yeah. if you mess it up, then everyone will go, well, women can't do that or, you know, exactly. Asian people can't do that. Or So that is that is really interesting that you've brought that into it as well. Is that something that you've kind yeah. of felt over the years, like you've experienced yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if I mess up, then women can't write, Asian women can't write, or Asian women can't act. And it, it's always that weight on your shoulders and... Uh, I think, you know, I write a lot of autobiographical kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is obviously not, uh, this is an adaptation. But of course, you, as a writer, I think you always take your own stories on. Yeah. And that definitely influenced me a lot. Why did you want to retell this story? Like, what appealed to you about this story particularly? A lot. A lot. Like you, I studied it when I was a student as well. And it's one of those that's always, you know, in the background haunting you a little bit. The opportunity came up with this company and Queensland Theatre and um, I just immediately became so excited and liberated. I feel like every character represents a part of myself. Like Antigone, you know, all the things that I don't dare to say and all the things that I wish I had said that this young woman just flies off and say it. And I, I love what it represents to the themes of like um, power you know, family versus the state, the young versus the old. I feel like it's very current. And when I was writing it, it was that the big um, climate change talk was happening and the young people were really fearing it, you know. So I just felt like it was so relevant to today, which is strange because it's 2,000 bloody years old, isn't it? But it felt so current. But I suppose those yeah. themes are kind of timeless, aren't they? Exactly. So I was going to ask you how you feel it's still relevant today. Um, I think a big one for me is like that, what we discussed, uh, you know, women in power today and how we get into the power, what the patriarchy does and how it's really just not useful for absolutely um, anyone really. And yeah, definitely uh, climate change as well. And I'm also very interested in the, the young wanting to uh, make change and then the older systems resisting them. And when do we listen? The young considered naive, but maybe they have wisdom, but 
yeah, that that struggle between the two was really interesting to me too. And even a, even today, with after I wrote the play, you know, with COVID, who's allowed to attend funerals, who's not? Yes. How you grieve, why you grieve. A lot of my plays have a very strong theme of grief in it. And uh, Creon is grieving too, right from the get go. That was a big thing that struck me. Was usually in the original text is not discussed as much, but she's just lost her her own son, and. She's coming into it fresh from grief. Antigone's grieving. Ismini uh, is a character I put in a lot more lines for than the original two. It's also grieving. Like, so it's this dysfunctional family trying to make it work and, and it doesn't. It's interesting because obviously Creon is, you know, the baddie, for want of better words. And Antigone is the hero. But Antigone's a bit of an idiot. She does this thing that she knows is probably going to get, you know, again, spoiler alert, she knows he's probably going to get killed and she does it anyway and she you know she goes ahead with it so in some ways you know you could argue that she's as proud and ego driven as creon mm. which is not mm. a way i looked at it when i studied it at the age of 18 ah. so it sounds like you have written creon more sympathetically than the original representation of creon so i just wondered whose whose camp are you in antigone's or creon's Gosh, I I hope that, you know, it's a text that people would look at and go, some people are with Antigone, some people are with Creon. I, I hope that I've written something complex enough that both characters are full-lived characters enough that you would root for one or the other and get passionate and then, you know, have a fight in the foyer with someone, an argument about, <laughs> no, it's, it, that would be fantastic. And I think I'm on both their camps. I As I wrote them, I grieved for both of them and I understood both their pain and that's the fun part, isn't it? When it's just pure goodie, pure baddie. It's not as fun to write. Yeah, absolutely. So I did want to ask you a little bit about your other work. Um, in particular, mm. you wrote and performed, I think it's a one-woman show, I think I read, Ma 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 Mad, which <laughs> yeah. is autobiographical about your mother's suicide. What, what made you want to share something so personal you know, funnily enough, I just pitched another show on Friday and voila, that's my mum again. She's in absolutely everything I write. Sometimes it's got nothing to do with her. And even the thing I'm writing recently, she's the midpoint. Like, she was not a character. I was um, actually working as an arts administrator for a long time, not a writer or an mm-hmm. actor. But I did all these courses and every time I got to create something, she would show up. Just show up and show up and then... um. I was, I remember having some fried rice with a friend of mine and he just said to me, you've got to write a show for her. You, you've got to write something. And um, there was a festival in town called Anywhere Festival where you could submit something. And, you know, once you get that deadline, you go, oh. So I've never written anything at that point. I I'm, I'm, wasn't, you know, a writer. and desperately wanted to act and write, but no one knew me from a bar of soap. So who's going to hire me? So I wrote this show about my mother and I cast myself in, you know, 12 different roles. And that really was the start of my career, I guess. Yeah, uh, it, it, the story traces me and my mother's journey, both. So um, our first big loves, our first heartbreak and so on and so forth. And it's set in a karaoke where I grew up because my parents owned karaoke bars. Wow. And then um, by the end of that, I had attempted suicide as well when I was 19. So we both reached that juncture and obviously chose um, different options. And at the end, I talked about um, holding her bones. Like the first time in Chinese tradition, we, we sort of burn it all and then you have the ceremony with the mm. bones. And her bones were just absolutely all colourful, like purple, green, blue. Like it was bizarre. And 
I talk about how, you know, it's as colorful as she was. Yeah. So she's still appearing in my work and in uh, various different capacities all the time. I think it's one of those things I'm going to be fascinated with my whole life. It is a hard thing to talk about sometimes in a public yeah. forum because obviously it is so personal. It, it is. is the taboo that is associated with suicide still. And all over the world, isn't it? Yeah. I remember even at my mother's funeral and, um, you know, we have all these tables of people and I sat there with my neighbours and they asked, you know, um, how did she die? And I said she committed suicide. And my aunt overheard, and she took me to a corner and slapped me and said, you always say heart attack, always say heart attack. And I, I was silenced, you know, for so long, and I felt like maybe talking about it has actually saved my life, and I now I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> and I wish more of us did, because I didn't even know the word depression or any yeah. of that when she was going through what she did. Yeah, I wish we knew. I wish we knew what a psychologist was, I wish. And not that that would help, you know, all the time, but I just wish we, we talked about it. And I wish I understood what was happening to me because in Mama Mama Man, I talk about how there was this research done that one third of all children between the certain age whose mothers commit suicide, they're three times more likely to do it themselves. Wow. So, yeah, so I, I just wish I knew what was happening to me and, you know, in my brain. And that show was kind of uh, exploring that, I guess. Merlin, thank you so much for joining me to chat about this. Antigone is showing at the newly reopened and renovated Mercury Theatre Colchester, somewhere where I spent a bit of time in my youth. And it is running from October the 1st to October the 16th. What have you got coming up next and where can we follow you to find out about what you're up to? Ooh, um, you can follow me on Instagram at Merlin Tong. And I'm writing a few things i'm uh, performing in another one woman show in february next year i think called blue bones so that's really exciting another autobiographical work so, yeah excellent merlin thank you so much for joining us thank you jen you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we make a sliding tackle, studs first, on our ovaries as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm going to start this week's bulletin with a look at some quotes from Premier League referee Mark Clattenburg, which made the headlines last week. Clattenburg was participating in a discussion on TalkSport Radio, a beacon in leading liberal and progressive thought about Sarah Cox, not that one, who recently became the first woman to referee a Premiership rugby match. So when's that going to happen in the top tier of football? He was asked. It's a big point, he said. Alas, he continued. The problem with women is, and certainly in refereeing in football, they have a difficult pathway if they get pregnant during their refereeing career. That's why there aren't many female refs at the top of the game, he said, adding. So they have to make a choice. Do they want to be pregnant or do they want to be referees? Not stopping there, he went on to add that it can be more of a struggle for women to pass the men's fitness test to become referees because pregnancy means you'll take nine to ten months out, he said, followed by six months to recover. Bloody hell, Mark, and the rest. He later clarified the comments, explaining to the Daily Mail that they weren't his views, just, you know, the facts, like... Is it the case that female officials who take a break to have a family can find their career progression slowed, he asked. Yes, it is. Does that make it right? No, absolutely not. Thanks for clarifying, Mark. He said he wanted more to be done about the issue and apologised for the awkward way in which he'd expressed his point on the radio show. 
He said he believed more should be done to help female officials progress through the system quicker than is currently the case by, for example, lowering the minimum age requirement for international refereeing from 25 years old to 22, which would allow women more time to move up the ranks before having a family. He said his comments were specific to refereeing and not a wider observation of women in sport. Now, I think this is interesting because Kluttenberg was lambasted for his comments and in defence of Mark Kluttenberg in capital letters, well, I think he's got a point. And I also think that if Pregnant and Screwed had said it, and they do actually on a fairly regular basis, we'd make them right. It is true that women are often forced to choose, that their careers are often curtailed by pregnancy and motherhood because the systems and frameworks that we exist in are designed for men and they don't take account of our differences because man or male is always the default. Klattenberg is actually suggesting that we look at those frameworks and see if there's something that could be done to make them work better for women, isn't he? Admittedly, the problem with women was perhaps not the best way to start that conversation. But I think he's right. And while we're on the subject of the powers that be fucking around with people's careers, treating women as an afterthought, let's go to FIFA, another beacon of diversity and... um, No, not really. UEFA and 10 of Europe's women's leagues, including the WSL, have written to FIFA to tell them that staging a men's World Cup every two years, because apparently that's a serious suggestion now, would be profoundly detrimental to the women's game. And let's not mess around here, clearly they're right. If the women's World Cup has to compete with the men's World Cup because they end up being held at the same time, well, it just can't compete. It's insane to think that it could. I mean, to be honest, I actually thought this was a bollocks suggestion anyway. Don't get me wrong, I love, love, love a World Cup. But it's a bit like wishing it were Christmas every day, isn't it? Slade. Was it Slade? No, it was the other ones. Wizard. It wouldn't be so special, would it? I am a little bit worried that this is still being talked about, but I I don't think it's going to happen, to be honest, because the Men's Domestic League also oppose it for rather different reasons I suspect in that it injures their players and gets in the way of them making cold hard cash but fuck it I don't care their cynical process is actually quite helpful here. Let's move on from football for some good news shall we and head over to cricket to say congratulations to Claire Connor former England captain who has become the first ever female president of Marlebone Cricket Club or Lords. Now, bearing in mind women weren't even allowed to become members of Lords until 1998, and even then only 70% of existing members voted in favour of it, I reckon this is pretty good going, so congratulations to her. And in more good news, bloody hell I'm full of it, to cycling, where GB's Lizzie Deegan came back from a disappointing Olympics this summer to win the inaugural edition of the Paris to Roubaix Femme on Saturday, Her prize money from a pot of €7,000 was €1,535. Guess how much the men's race winner gets? 30000 Lols. But wait, I told you this was good news, and it is. Big up then, her team, Trek Segafredo, who said that they would not only match, but make up the difference so that she'd take home the same prize money as the men's race winner good it's cycling for fuck's sake they can afford it more of this please or even better increase the women's prize fund pots to begin with that's all for me this week i will be back next time with more women's sports 
Welcome to Rated or Dated. Earth to Mickey, what did we watch this week? Earth to Hannah. And I hope you know, I don't actually think that I'm like the commander (laughs) and Earth to... This week, we watched 2001 fashion spoof come conspiracy theory comedy Zoolander. Written by, directed by and starring Ben Stiller as male model Derek Zoolander, handsome as hell, thick as shit and tasked with stopping himself from assassinating the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Yes, it is quite silly, but then again, it is about fashion. It's also a family affair with Christine Taylor, a.k.a. Mrs Stiller, playing plucky investigative journalist Matilda Jeffries, and Jerry Stiller, a.k.a. Ben's dad, as Derek's agent Maury Ballstein, a character who wouldn't know hashtag me too if it grabbed him firmly on the arse. And there's Stiller's movie family too. If, like me, you're a Ben Stiller fan, it'll be no surprise to see. Will Ferrell as flamboyant fashion designer and criminal mastermind Mugatu, Owen Wilson as rival top male model Hansel, and Vince Vaughan as Derek's silent coal mining brother Luke. Vaughan is nicely backed up by Judah Friedlander as Derek's other coal mining brother Scrappy, and John Voigt as coal mining dado Larry, endlessly disappointed that one of his sons has decided to put gel in his hair and become a top male model instead of following family tradition and heading down pit. And perhaps the most inspired bit of casting, David Duchovny as a conspiracy theorist and former hand model of J.P. Pruitt. Because, yeah, I mean, still a celebrity Rolodex has also been put to very good use. And the cameos in Zoolander are as insane as Mugato. Can I just say, Mickey, you set me a task of spotting two cameos in it. I did indeed spot both of them. Oh, well done. Justin Theroux was a tricky one, but I'm impressed. Uh, no, you can't hide Justin Theroux under all of that ugly. I mean, this film is really committed to making beautiful men ugly because he is ugly as hell as the DJ. David Duchovny, ugly as hell as uh, as the hand model. And uh, Alexander Skarsgård just kind of looks weirdly average with a big spot on his head. I know, I know, but hilarious. And we will get to that. But those cameos, man. Hello, Victoria Beckham, Lil' Kim, Cuba Gooding Jr., Winona Ryder, Alexander Skarsgård, Billy Zane, and fuck me, David Bowie, (laughs) among many, many others. The character of Derek Zoolander first appeared in the VH1 Fashion Awards TV specials in 1996 and 1997, written by Stiller and Drake Sather, who returned to co-write Zoolander. Released on September the 28th in the US, it was initially edited to remove the Twin Towers from the New York skyline because clearly it had been filmed before 9-11. Stiller defended his decision to erase them, saying he did what he thought was best at the time, but the towers were reinserted in the 2016 Blu-ray release. So Zoolander did pretty well at the box office, grossing $60.8 million from a $28 million budget. And review-wise, it was mostly a solid three stars across the board. Some critics weren't even that enamoured, though, and Roger Ebert really fucking hated it and was so offended by not only Zoolander's use of the real country of Malaysia in choosing a prime minister to assassinate, but also the premise that the fashion industry relies so heavily on child labour it would go so far as to assassinate anyone trying to halt it, and so he gave the film just one star. Personally, I sort of feel he's missed the point on that last one. This is a satire, albeit one that's dafter than a cupboard of brushes, and highlighting how reliant fashion is on exploitative labour doesn't seem such a bad thing to do. Amen. 
Mm. And according to Stiller, years later, in private, Ebert admitted that he had changed his mind and now thought that the film was funny and apologised to him for going overboard. It's weird. It does jar that it's a real country because it's never a real country and stuff like that. It's always like, welcome to bravado. So, OK, I'll skip a little ahead. An unsurprising fact for you, Zoolander was never shown in Malaysia. <laughs> was also banned in neighbouring Singapore. And in the Asian release, all references to the country of Malaysia were changed to Micronesia. But satire-wise, there is also Derelict, which is the name given to the fashion line designed by Mugato, which he describes as, quote, a fashion, a way of life inspired by the very homeless, the vagrants, the crack whores that make this wonderful city so unique. Bad taste? Well, very much so. But it is also a parody of a real-life fashion line created by John Galliano in 2000, in which Galliano used clothing worn by the destitute as an inspiration for a real-life fashion line. Classy, huh? Before we chat more about those cameos and who else you spotted, I'm excited. A quick plot summary. Derek Zoolander has been the world's hottest male model for three years on the trot. His trademark look, Blue Steel, catapulting him to international stardom despite his inability to turn left. But his star is fading thanks to the arrival of laid-back cool dude Hansel, stealing hearts, modelling jobs and the top model gong. Matters are made worse by a hit job on Derek in Time magazine by journalist Matilda Jeffries and the tragic death of his three best male model friends in a freak gasoline fight accident. In despair, Derek quits modelling and tries his hand at coal mining with his family in New Jersey. It does not go well. In the meantime, fashion mogul Jacob Mugatu is told by a shadowy fashion cabal that he must get rid of the new Prime Minister of Malaysia, whose policies will end child labour in the country devastating for fast fashion there's only one answer invite the prime minister of malaysia to his runway show derelict hire dimwitted derek zoolander and brainwash him to assassinate the president during the show i mean obviously what other choice is there matilda however has been hot on magatu's tail for a while now and works out his nefarious plan can she help derek to stop himself from assassinating the prime minister of malaysia will hansel help and how big does the derek zoolander center for kids who can't read good and who want to learn to do other stuff good too actually have to be uh yep yep and at least three times bigger than magatu's model so hannah jen have you seen zoolander before hannah i'm gonna ask you first yes many times many times did many you times. see it at the cinema maybe i did Maybe mm. I did. I can't remember, so I'm guessing maybe not. But, yeah, I have seen it many times. It's the sort of thing that absolutely everybody owns on DVD. Two days before payday, when you're rooting through your flatmate's DVD collection to see what to watch, you always like think, well, I found three copies of Zoolander. I suppose I ought to watch <laughs> one of them. It would be rude not to. Jen was shaking her head then. So, Jen, is this your first time with the Zoolander? It is. I've seen bits of it before because it's kind of unavoidable, but um, I've never actually bothered to sit down and watch it before. I don't know why, really. Like, I don't generally like that much stuff from that kind of wheelhouse, as it were. I don't really Do you like mean Mickey Will... Noonan's wheelhouse. <laughs> well, I just I don't really like all the Will Ferrell kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you here. I'm not a big fan of Will Ferrell either. I fucking love Will Ferrell. I I think like he does some stuff really 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 well but i feel like every time i just want him to stop and he continues if you see what i mean like he he's, he, he takes it further every he, time he's than I quite want toned him to. down in this though to be fair yes actually. yeah i have seen him in stuff that i've enjoyed like i did watch 
much, much later than it actually was a thing. I did watch Anchorman eventually, and I did watch Anchorman 2 eventually, and I enjoyed them both. But generally speaking, I've not found his stuff that funny. So I think I just didn't really think this would be for me. I guess my follow-up question was, was it for you? I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. It's very, very silly. And silly is absolutely my wheelhouse for certain aspects of comedy. I love love clever, I love satire, but silly just will never fail to cheer me up. Yeah, no, it's extremely silly. I was very tired when I watched it, as is, like, basically my life now. But it's like, I didn't have to concentrate on it particularly. It just sort of happened around me, and, like, every now and again I was like, oh, ha-ha, that's quite funny, or oh, that's a funny cameo, or, like, blah, blah, blah. And there were bits that I was, you know, like, proper lolzing at. Hannah, what about you? What does it do for you, if anything? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, Yeah, I can't say I love, love, love it because I can't remember the last time I watched it. And and you'll note that I didn't say I owned it on DVD. Um, No, you said other people did. I mean, it is funny. Jerry Stiller is is just, as a human being, incredibly amusing. So I could just watch him forever. Just balls models. I mean, it's so simple. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Quite often, I find, when you get things that are really, really heavy with cameos, they feel a bit up themselves. But because yeah. this is sending up that world, yeah, it doesn't feel like that. So it has a kind of warmth of, that comes with familiarity, even though some of that familiarity is, oh, look, there's Donald Trump, yes. which is obviously horrifying. But while we're on cameos, I did want to ask you both, who was your favourite spot? Well, you asked me if I could spot uh, Pat Oswald, and I did. But that's largely because of his voice, because his voice is really distinct. Where um, did you spot him? He, He's the monkey photographer. Yeah, he is the man saying, dance for me like a monkey. Stephen Dorff is in it for about 20 (laughs) seconds and just does one of those what the fuck is happening looks, which I find quite enjoyable. And I will say, much as John Voight is not a man I would choose to heap praise on ordinarily, John Voight's selection of disappointed faces in this is incredible. (laughs) It feels a bit like he's channeling a kind of low-key Christopher Walken to me in this. Yeah. 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 Where he goes at the end, spoiler alert, uh, where he's like, that's my son! That did actually, that was one of the bits that made me like actually sort of proper lols. Um, it's a merman! It's so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I, I think as a satire though, it isn't, nice. it isn't a satire. Satires don't tend to have that much sort of silly humour in them, mm-hmm. like yeah. you say. But as a satire, it's spot on. And that merman thing is a great example of that. I saw an advert the other day in which Adam Driver's swimming with a horse. And <laughs> yes, I just I saw thought that. <laughs> that merman thing is just spot on because perfume and aftershave adverts are bollocks on a level that I can't even explain why they're bollocks because they're just nonsense. They're just one person saying three or four disjointed words and then swimming with a horse. I'm not going to be the person people expect me to be anymore. My favourite one. Moisture by is Martin. the essence of wetness. Mm. What's it called? It's um, it's directed by that Chanel one. It's directed by Martin Scorsese and it costs like millions and millions of pounds and it is like the the shittest thing I've ever is seen. Is that the one it's with great. Nicole Kidman in it? No, that's, that's Chanel number five. This is a men's perfume. I think it might be Chanel Bleu. Right. And, um, and it's, men's it's perfume. like, it's like <laughs> loosely based on the end of Notting Hill. He's in a press conference and he goes, I'm not going to be the person people expect me to be anymore. And he like throws right. the little things down. It's really bad. 
just going back to the satire and yeah to, to say for the third time it is much much sillier than you usually expect a satire to be which you know sharp is usually the word that's used around satire and while it has its moment sharp isn't necessarily you'd use around anything starring Derek Zoolander but it's send up of fast fashion and how it addresses like you know that when Mugatu's doing the big thing of oh but the kids want to go to work why would mm. you take the work away from them you're just like yeah actually this gets the message across pretty well i had that conversation on this very podcast with my cousin about fashion and naomi and i talked about you know where fashion's going and she gave me hope because she's like really smart and intelligent and progressive and all of that stuff so i can never quite believe that she works in an industry like fashion Mm -hmm. um and she basically was saying it needs to change because it needs to like care about who makes his garments and it needs to sort of care about you know the appropriation of stuff this film does demonstrate very well what I absolutely loathe about fashion, why I think it's one of the most repulsive industries on the face of the earth. Yeah. There was one bit. I couldn't decide whether it jarred with me or whether they handled it well enough for it to be fine, and that is when she's talking about bulimia. Yes, I wasn't sure And so about I that. wondered what you two thought about that section. I think it's really funny, and I think it's yes. really sharp, and I think it's really a demonstration of how that industry is so up its own ass and so insular that something that happened to her, which is a really big deal, is just like, oh shit, that happens to all of us all the time. I thought it worked, yeah, really well. Okay. I don't think it mocked bulimia. I think it mocked the fashion industry and that's... It punched up. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I wasn't sure about it. I thought it was a bit clumsy. I love that it is such a silly film and yet it does tackle some pretty big topics and whether your takeaway from it is like, oh, I don't think it, someone's going to watch this and stop shopping at Primark. I don't think that's going to work. And obviously there are some people who have to shop at Primark because clothes are expensive. Um, that's my caveat there. But I do think it's interesting that you take a comedy and you cram in some really quite big issues, some sort of hot button issues. And I think, of course, and this is no offence to Bird Stiller and Owen Wilson... Oh, it's hilarious that they're male models. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's the that, joke, that, right? Yeah, no offence. Yeah. I mean, because Owen Wilson is oddly hot, but not because he's physically not attractive. Not conventionally attractive. Yeah, exactly that. Like, it's yeah. because he's that sort of laconic Texas that is what works with Matthew McConaughey. It's what works with Woody <laughs> Harrelson. It's what works with all of the Wilsons. And by um, that she means it's what works for Dunleavy. <laughs> <laughs> it's inherently laughable. that. It, yes, yeah. exactly that. In not casting people who are well I mean he wrote this for Owen Wilson didn't he so there was no chance of anyone else being casted in it it kind of points at the emperor's new closeness of it all a bit in which people go look at this person aren't they the best looking person in the world and you're like are mm. they the bit where they get all the celebrities on the red carpet to talk about how attractive he is it's, it, like it's funny because yeah. he's, he's he's not <laughs> but it's the same way that Will Ferrell and I know you both said you're not massive fans of him but he always casts himself as the leading handsome man and yeah. it's, it's it must be an in-joke because, you know, when he does more serious acting, and I think he's very good at his serious acting, and obviously he's in Georgia Pritchett's new show where she's the showrunner, and he can really do serious acting, and then he isn't the leading handsome man because no one else would ever fucking cast him as that. <laughs> I think that that is the key. And obviously there aren't very many female characters in Zoolander, but I did like that the smartest one is Matilda and she's a woman, and the hardest one is the sidekick Mila Jovovich, and she's definitely the hardest one. Now, Hannah, people might criticise me. This, they might say, Mickey, this isn't going to work on a podcast, but I want you to give me your best blue steel. <laughs> um, 
Oh, listeners, you missed out on a treat there. Absolutely. A trio of classic blue steels. One last question. Rated or dated? Yeah, I'm going to say rated. I liked it. I had a nice time. Yeah, fuck it. Why not? There wasn't anything particularly dated about it. Yeah, sure. Rated. Go on then. Obviously, I think it's rated. I've, I've not hidden the fact that I love it. The only little bit that is dated is when one of them just shouts, Zip Disc! And I was like, that is... Puts it back know, in that, the early 20- that 2000s. That Apple Mac is pretty... Uh, I had a bit of nostalgia because I had that Mac. It wasn't orange. My one was grey, but I did have that Mac. I stole I remember it. the advert. It was like the coolest thing anyone could yeah, have at the yeah, time. Like, yeah. mm. I love the 2001 Space Odyssey riff. That is, it, it makes me chuckle. Yeah. What have we got next week, please? Well, next week, funnily, we're back to coal mining. Oh, um, awesome. Gonna watch a documentary that hasn't happened on Rated or Dated. That wow. is exciting. Yeah, we're gonna watch 1976 Harlan County, USA, which is generally regarded, if you have a look in all the fancy places, it will generally be on most top 10 lists for best documentary ever made. Is Timothy Oliphant in it wearing a Stetson? No. I'm not watching it. <laughs> no, but you are right to say that actually Harlan County USA had a huge influence on Justified. <laughs> so what you're saying, Hannah, is I've got an excuse to re-watch Justified again before next week. Or just look at a picture of Timothy Oliphant. Well, I'm off to do that. Bye. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.